Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the True Blue Crime Investigates podcast. My name is Dan, and as always, I will be your host for this episode. And this is going to be a shorter episode as it was a busy weekend for me, and I didn't have the time to tackle a large case. But the episode is still important to me as it shows how advances in technology can help give victims back their identity, especially victims of sex trafficking-related homicides. But since we have a little extra time this episode, I wanted to take a second to thank you all for listening to the podcast and tell you a little about myself. My name is Dan, and I was a police officer for 17 years and a crime scene technician for 13 of those years. I was the lead crime scene technician for homicides, robberies, and hundreds of other crimes during my career. I love true crime podcasts, and when I was forced to leave law enforcement in 2021 due to health complications from a work-related battle with COVID-19, I decided to take my expertise into podcasting true crime. I started my main podcast, True Blue Crime, on Memorial Day 2023, and the podcast has grown by leaps and bounds. There are over 100 episodes for that podcast currently, and after I attend CrimeCon 2023 later this month, I plan on settling into a five-episode-a-week schedule with two episodes of the main podcast, two of this podcast, and one premium episode for my Patreon and PayPal supporters. And a little about me, I spent a good chunk of my childhood in Australia, but as you can tell, I lost the accent during elementary school here in America. After moving here from Australia, I lived most of my life in Minnesota and joined the U.S. Army in 1999 as an infantry soldier. I served overseas in Kosovo and assisted with post-9-11 security in America. As a veteran, I have great respect for my fellow veterans and I hope to grow the podcast enough to start supporting charities aimed at helping veterans and their families. Growing up in Minnesota has given me a love for the Midwest and since we are often referred to as flyover country, as most people from the more populated east and west coast fly over us on the way to the other coast, I have an episode format where every episode that ends in five is from the five-state area of Wisconsin, Iowa, South Dakota, North Dakota, and my home state of Minnesota. I also love international travel and crime, so every episode that ends in zero will be an international episode, and the country selected will be based on how many listeners I have from any given country. Now that you know a little about me and how the podcast operates, let's get to the business side of things before we get into this episode. If you'd like to get updates about what the podcast is up to, please like and follow the True Blue Crime Productions Facebook page. More information can be found at the show's website at truebluecrimeproductions.com. And if you'd like to email me directly, my email is truebluecrimeproductions at gmail.com. If you can, please become a subscriber and support the show via Patreon or PayPal. Links to make donations are on the website at truebluecrimeproductions.com. Any donation level helps, and it'll help ensure I can keep making free episodes of the podcast and expand the podcast in the future. Any donations will receive a shout-out in a future podcast, a thank-you message from the host, and some cool True Blue Crime merch. For no cost whatsoever, please rate and review the show on whatever platform you're listening to it on. Thanks so much. Without any further ado, let's dive into this episode of True Blue Crime Investigates. Today's episode is an interesting case because it is half solved. When deer hunters located the badly decomposed body of a young woman in a Wisconsin creek in 2008, it would start a multi-part investigation. The first and large challenge was identifying the woman and because the identification wasn't immediate, and because the identification wasn't immediate, 
She was named the Fond du Lac Jane Doe after the name of the county she was found in. And I'm sure as fans of true crime, you guys are well aware that if somebody is unidentified, they are either a Jane Doe or a John Doe. So this victim is unfortunately going to be referred to as the Fond du Lac Jane Doe for over a decade. And during several attempted identifications, as I mentioned, it would take over a decade to identify the woman, and now investigators are trying to solve the murder of a victim of sex trafficking. This is the story of the Fond du Lac Jane Doe. It was a cold day on November 23, 2008 in rural Wisconsin when a team of deer hunters stumbled across a gruesome sight. The body of a young woman had been dumped into a farm creek in the town of Ashford, Wisconsin in Fond du Lac County. Based on the obvious decomposition of the body, it was estimated that she had been deposited in the creek sometime during the summer months. An early freeze meant the body had to be partially chiseled out of the creek while divers searched the water under the body for more evidence. Crime scenes like this are extremely difficult. Both the presence of water and natural predators would have damaged evidence and investigators wouldn't immediately know if this was the primary crime scene or secondary or even tertiary scene. And I haven't talked about multi-stage scenes yet. Uh, I don't know if I've even really discussed it much in my main podcast, but when you refer to a scene, if a murder occurs and the body is left at that scene, you consider that a primary crime scene. Now you could have other scenes if the suspect gets into a vehicle and drives off, that vehicle becomes a secondary scene where there may be evidence of the primary crime. But in cases where you have bodies left in a location, it sometimes is a secondary or even tertiary scene in the sense that the crime may have occurred at one location. Then there's a second crime scene where that body is transported if it's put into the trunk of a vehicle or somehow taken from one location to another, then that mode of transportation would be a secondary scene, and then where the body is deposited is a tertiary scene, or the third scene. So what investigators don't know at this time is, was this girl driven to this creek? Was she killed at the creek and her body dumped there? In that case, they could be looking at a primary crime scene where there would be potential for the the weapon that was used to be left at the scene. Sometimes, if a body is found at a much earlier stage before decomposition is set in, if you can see wounds to the victim, such as gunshot wounds, and you find casings, then you know you're looking at a primary crime scene, that this person was most likely shot at the scene and their body left there. Whereas in this case, unfortunately, as we're going to talk about, the decomposition is not going to give investigators much of an indication as to how this victim was killed. And so they are going to search this crime scene looking for any evidence. Again, fired cartridge cases, a knife, ligature bindings, anything along those lines that might indicate how this victim died and whether or not this is a primary crime scene or not. And as I mentioned, especially because we just covered the, the yogurt shop murders, water is a terrible destructive element when it comes to evidence. And this can be, in the case of the yogurt shop murders, it was water introduced by firefighters to extinguish a fire. Uh, I've worked crime scenes where it's been absolute rain or downpour or wet snow that is melting. Any of that, it, it can wash away evidence, can wash away DNA, can wash away bodily fluids. 
And in this case, you've got a creek, which is even worse because it's a constant moving body of water that can transport evidence. So this is why you have divers in the water and they're not only going to just check under the body, they're going to have to check downstream anything that could have been taken from the body, especially during the decomposition and carried by the, the flow of the water. So again, this is already an extremely difficult scene and we talk about in homicide investigation comparing your scene to a hand of poker and I always say this and then I always put the disclaimer I'm not diminishing a homicide the death of this victim at all by trying to compare it to a game of chance what I'm doing is just creating a visualization as to how a scene can be extremely difficult or a scene can be made easier and I've referenced in the past if it's a woman who's going through a divorce and she's found murdered in her home investigators especially if there's a gun involved and the husband or or soon-to-be ex or boyfriend or whatever it might be owns that type of handgun you've been dealt a pretty decent card when it comes to homicide investigation your your hand is likely going to play out and it's going to be a winning case whereas this is this is getting one of the worst hands in poker in terms of you have a unknown victim unknown suspect unknown cause of death and a very difficult crime scene to work so again it doesn't mean investigators aren't going to work it and in fact this was a very personal case for a lot of the investigators that did work this case and i give them a lot of credit for how hard they tried to identify this woman and how hard they still are working on this case but again just just from the very get-go you're going to arrive on this scene as an investigator and say this is this is going to be a tough one this is going to be a tough one to solve and as i mentioned complicating the investigation even more was the fact they had no idea who this young woman was she did not match any missing persons reports in fond du lac county and the severe decomposition were going to present an additional challenge to identifying what she looked like when she was alive this is november in the middle of Wisconsin, which matches pretty much Minnesota weather at this point. November, known for being cold, we likely have had at least one or two snowfalls, maybe even potentially a significant snowfall at this point. Uh, this is deer hunting season. This is why she's found by deer hunters. Uh, deer hunting season is notoriously known for, in, in northern Minnesota, Wisconsin, being a pretty chilly weekend or time period as fall gives way to winter here in, in the great north so it's going to be pretty clear that this woman has been there for a while uh, if she had been placed into this creek days or weeks prior because of the cold weather there would not be nearly as much decomposition so not only are they going to have to try to estimate who this person is they don't even know when this person actually went missing so they're going to look at missing persons reports at first just in the county because it makes sense this is a very rural area there's not a whole lot around here so it's not as if it's on the outskirts of a major city if you look at wisconsin this is pretty much smack dab in the almost the middle of the state it's a little east but it's center of the state it's away from milwaukee it's away from green bay it's away from madison it's away from most of the major metropolitan areas of wisconsin so this is rural farmland wisconsin so they're going to first look for 
missing persons from that county. And then they're going to expand that out into Wisconsin. But first, they're going to try to identify what she looked like when she was alive. They're also going to look at the crime scene to see if they do have any clues about how long she'd likely been dead. And this is mainly going to come from the clothing, and it's actually going to give them some decent information. This doesn't always work this way because somebody could be wearing clothing that is very generic and has they've owned for years, and so you're not going to be able to put a good timestamp on it. But in this case, the shirt that the victim was found wearing at the time of her death was traced back to a family dollar store, and investigators found it was only sold during the spring of 2008. And her undergarments pinpointed the date even closer as they were only sold at Family Dollar between July 1st and July 15th. This meant the earliest she could have been killed was July 1st, or roughly four and a half months earlier. And in another article, it stated that the Family Dollar received these items on July 1st, and they put them out for sale on July 15th. So it may have been misreported in one article or the other, but basically the the point of it is that she could not have purchased or somebody could not have purchased these items for her before July 1st. So they know that she was alive after July 1st or at July 1st and they're going to work with that as a timeline for their missing persons report. So it's going to narrow it down from a potentially much longer amount of time to somebody who's reported missing in the last four and a half months. And her body had decomposed to the point that her skin was no longer able to be used for any identifying marks such as scars or tattoos. It also meant that her cause of death was not able to be determined because a pathologist could not rule out drowning, stabbing, or strangulation. They did determine her manner of death was most likely not a suicide, and they were confident she was a victim of homicide. Toxicology tests were done to see if there was any evidence of a drug overdose. But while the investigators would not release the results of the toxicology test, they said they ruled out a drug overdose. So again, this is one of those times you have to read between the lines of the investigation. First off, there's not a ton of information out there about this case. There are quite a few articles just because it did pique public interest that this woman was found. It's a young woman and nobody knows who she is. So in a small rural farming community, of course, this did create a quite a bit of a stir. However, as for actual parts of the investigation or information coming out from the police department, the investigators, there's not a whole lot of information out there. But when you read between the lines and they say that they've ruled out a drug overdose, or I guess the, the wording of it was something to the effect of they won't release the results of the toxicology tests, but they do not still know how she was killed. So if you read between the lines, you're going to say that they've ruled out overdose because if it had been an overdose, then they know the, the cause of death. So again, I read between the lines. I assume this we're not talking about a drug overdose. There's It's likely a more common cause of homicide, which is going to be a, a stabbing or strangulation and the only reason they are believing this is because my guess is most homicides with a gun in this situation are going to be a shot to the head and that's going to penetrate the skull and there's no damage to the skull so I'm assuming they're ruling out 
a, an execution style shooting and they're going to be going along the lines of either a drowning, stabbing, or strangulation at this point. A pathologist determined that she was likely between 15 and 21 years old, stood 4 foot 10 to 5 foot 4, and while her exact weight was hard to pinpoint as her clothing had different sizes and she could have worn it tight or baggy, she was estimated to weigh 120 pounds. So again, unfortunately, part of the decomposition is you're losing a lot of weight off the body. It's I don't want to get into the, the morbid details of it, but there's there's no way to accurately determine after somebody's decomposed to this point what their weight would have been when they were alive. So they're going to use clothing, and they said something like they look at her underwear size was, I think it was like large or something, and so you would normally attribute that to someone who weighs a little bit more, but her jeans that were on her were a size three, which is a petite size, so it indicates that she likely didn't have a lot of weight. So again, this is where the pathologist, looking at the clothing, they're seeing an indication of somebody who has a little extra weight to her, and then indications of somebody who's petite. So really getting a weight would have been difficult, and that's tough because you're now describing a missing person between 15 and 21 years old, which is the most common time for people to be reported as runaways, for unfortunately for women to be in part of a, a sex trafficking situation. The height, four, 10 to 5 foot 4, is going to cover a lot of women in that age range as well, and you don't have a great weight. So again, you haven't narrowed it down that far. Had she been older, there's less people who are 40 plus that are going to be missing or reported as missing or obviously as a runaway because they're 40 plus. They may have a more accurate height for somebody who's a little bit older just because you don't know what the where people are at with their growth sometimes between 15 and 21 years old. So again, the while the pathologists did their best to try to get a range here, it's, it's not going to be a very exclusive range. It's going to include a lot of missing people. And with a possible date of death during the summer, investigators then looked statewide to see if any young women were reported as missing or runaways during the time period Jane Doe was believed to have been killed. And unfortunately, this search also came up empty. And in a surprising revelation, a forensic entomologist located insects inside Jane Doe that established a timeline of two to four months from the time of her death to her discovery. And this coincided with the findings from the date the clothing was sold, but unfortunately didn't give investigators any more of an exact date of death. So it's more of a confirmation that they're looking at the right time frame for her to have been killed. And the reason I say it's surprising is I guess this forensic entomologist didn't expect to find insects just because of the body being partially submerged in water. It was actually in ice at this point and had to be chiseled out part of the body. So I don't know if they just assume that it's just not a conducive environment for insect larva growth or whatever it might be. But this also might explain too the, the time frame of two to four months uh, because they're not able to pinpoint a, a more exact time because insect activity in 
this area is going to stop as things get colder in, in mid-September and this is about two months out from that so they could be saying we can't tell if this insect activity stopped mid-September or if it stopped right before death which would give us two to four months. And within a few weeks of her discovery, her skull was sent to the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, where a scan was done, and with the assistance of software, a composite face was made for the unidentified woman. Investigators distributed this to law enforcement agencies nationwide to see if anyone had a missing persons report that might match this Jane Doe. And while a few leads did come in, including a promising one involving a missing woman of the right age and relative size, DNA from that discovered body did not match DNA from the missing woman. In 2009, investigators attempted to make a Facebook page for Jane Doe, but ran into legal problems with Facebook as they claimed pages were only for living people. This was during the early phases of Facebook, as it appeared that this is no longer a requirement. However, eventually while working with a Facebook lawyer, the investigators were able to make a page. So when I found this news article, at first I didn't realize it was back from 2009 and I was sitting there scratching my head because like, I have a Facebook page for the podcast. I've had other Facebook pages in the past and then I realized this was really early on and Facebook was at that point just designed to be single user personal pages only so you weren't supposed to be able to make pages for other people and doing so was a violation of Facebook policy. So you didn't have business pages, you didn't have all these pages that people put up in, in memory of somebody or it, it, like in the case of a missing person, a, a page that's looking for information about a missing person. So this was, this was all pre-Facebook allowing that kind of stuff, but eventually they were able to make this Facebook page as they saw this was you know the dawn of facebook they saw what a, a potential tool it was to get information out there to get the picture out there because they had this composite image they wanted to get it in front of as many people as they could so they thought facebook would be a great way and hopefully especially because it was be facebook was being used by people that would be roughly the age of jane doe they were hoping that somebody would see her photo on facebook it would get shared or or, or whatnot and somebody would look and say, hey, that's so-and-so. You know, I haven't seen her since the summer of 2008. And at one point, investigators believe the victim may be Amanda Berry, who was a young woman of the right age and size who went missing from Cleveland, Ohio on April 21, 2003. But her name was taken off the list when she was miraculously found alive in the custody of Ariel Castro in 2013. That was the monster that had the women in his basement in Cleveland, Ohio. So at first they thought, even though she's found in 2008, they're thinking there's a possibility that Amanda was put into sex trafficking and then she survives five plus years in sex trafficking and then unfortunately ends up dying. And that's the other problem is you can have a missing person from 2001, 2002, 2003, 2004, whatever it might be, all the way up until summer of 2008 and that person could still be your missing person they don't have to have gone missing a day or two or even a month before their body is found they can be put into sex trafficking and be a victim of that for years before they run into a serial killer or somebody ends up killing them 
And so from the date that they're missing to the time their body is found, there can be years there. So thankfully, it wasn't Amanda Berry. She was found alive. And also on the list of possible identifications were two teenage girls named Connie McAllister and Brittany Pert. Connie McAllister was from Wisconsin. And in 2004, at 15 years old, she ran off with her abusive 22-year-old Mexican boyfriend. And so this was you know, four years after this. This 15-year-old girl meets up with this 22-year-old guy. He's abusive. He convinces her to run off with him. And investigators had to believe maybe there's a chance that he ends up killing her in 2008 and dumping her body. And so they're, they're still thinking this is a possibility. But nine years later, this Connie McAllister got the courage to approach a church in Mexico and ask them to contact her family because she wanted to come home. So basically, this abusive older boyfriend had convinced her to go to Mexico with him. They end up starting a family down there, and eventually she matures enough to the point she realizes she made a huge mistake, and luckily she's alive and is, is able to be reunited with her family. Brittany Pert went missing in July of 2008 from Maryland, so now we have somebody who's missing around the time the body's found, but she was found deceased three years later in Delaware. So obviously by 2011, they're going to know this isn't Brittany Pert. And by that year, 2011, with lead after lead coming up empty, the decision was made to bury Jane Doe. The county paid for a casket, a burial plot was donated, and citizens paid for the flowers. A service was held, which was not easy considering the attendees did not know who they were burying, but it was said to be a respectful service with a theme of treating each other with kindness and dignity. And as advancements in DNA led to things such as DNA phenotyping, the decision was made in 2018 to exhume Jane Doe's body for DNA samples that could be used to discover more information that could lead to her identification. And I did find this a little strange that she's buried in 2011 and when they buried her that they would not have kept enough DNA from her to be used as DNA advanced. so, uh, again, I don't understand why she had to be exhumed if this was a, an oversight before she was buried, but she wasn't buried for three years after she was found. So I, I don't understand why they didn't take samples during those three years. Uh, maybe they, they felt they had exhausted everything and didn't realize how far DNA technology was going to, going to advance. But ultimately... They do the right thing, make sure that they're, they're doing this to the full letter, and they get these DNA samples from Jane Doe's body to be used in these advanced tests. And DNA phenotyping works by using known DNA markers that indicate certain physical characteristics that would make things like composite sketches more accurate. For example, it was said Jane Doe was likely Caucasian, could have been Hispanic, Native American, Asian, or of a mixed race. Any non Caucasian DNA influence could drastically change her composite image and could be the reason no one was able to identify her. With a more accurate ethnic background, a composite sketch could could be completed with a higher degree of accuracy. And that's because these composite images, they're using the bone structure of the skull to create an image of the person, but influences from other ethnicities are going to change the person's complexion, going to change certain facial features, eyelids, 
knows everything to the point that you can have two composite images from the same skull and if you introduce the non-Caucasian DNA influence, you're going to have a much different looking composite image in the end. So they thought maybe because it had been 10 years and nobody had identified this woman that they had maybe made a mistake assuming she was Caucasian and if they look at this phenotyping and find out that she's has non-Caucasian DNA influence, it's possible that they could get a better composite image that somebody might actually identify her with. Further testing was done using isotope analysis that looked at minerals stored in human hair from drinking water. This analysis can indicate where in a country or the world a person may have spent a significant amount of time. The results came back in August of 2018, and the isotope analysis found that Jane Doe had spent most of her life in the American Southwest and had only been living in the area of the Midwest for a year or so prior to her death. And I looked into this isotope analysis a little bit more because we're, we're going to find out that I don't know that there's a connection to the American Southwest. And from what I've seen, sometimes this isotope analysis works, but sometimes it's way off. There's been situations where Jane Doe's or John Doe's have been put through isotope analysis and their hair has indicated that, that they live part of their life in Eastern Europe or Greece or somewhere else in the world. And then when they actually do identify the person, they find out they had never be, even been to that part of the world. So again, it's, I don't know if it's a subjective science as much as maybe there's potential for mistakes to be made in the process. At least, again, just from what I've seen, I looked at three or four famous cases using this isotope analysis because I, I first spent a bunch of time looking to see if this had been confirmed once they identify her, if she had spent most of her life in the American Southwest, and it didn't appear to be the case. So then I started looking at how accurate this isotope analysis is, found several high-profile cases that said that it wasn't. Now, maybe it is 90% accurate, and you're, I just found the 10% that wasn't, but again, it, it seems like a really cool science, but it also seems like it maybe has the potential to not be as accurate as people had hoped. And DNA phenotyping results were not released, but investigators turned to another new science using DNA, which is genetic genealogy. Using similar DNA profiles in public databases was made mainstream after it was used to identify the Golden State Killer, and since then, several cold cases have been solved using the science. A forensic genealogist was given Jane Doe's DNA profile, and she got to work looking for close enough relative matches to build a family tree. When she was finished, the first half of this 13-year investigation was over. And before we get into identifying this Jane Doe, this is what really intrigued me about this case is right now ge genetic genealogy is the thing in cold cases. I mean, we've seen it with the Golden State Killer. We've seen it with several other high-profile cases. And I know there's been a couple John Doe, Jane Doe identifications. I think there's the, the boy in the box, I want to say famous case of a young child found deceased and nobody claiming to know anything about this child. I believe that child was identified using genetic genealogy. So while most of 
the highlights, if you want to call them, of genetic genealogy have been identifying suspects such as the Golden State Killer or other profile killers. There is a use for it too in cases like this where we have somebody who has been unidentified for 13 years. We can get their DNA and if we can find out who their closest relatives are, there's a chance we can identify these people and let their families know what happened to them. And I think back to the covered in, in true blue crime, but the butcher baker of Alaska, some of his victims are still unidentified to this day. These are some, hopefully, somebody at some point will be able to use genetic genealogy to identify those women. And, and in reality, I, I would really hope that it can be used for all unidentified victims of crime can be identified through genetic genealogy because there are cases like the Butcher Baker case where you have a suspect, you have known crimes, that person's actually in prison for the rest of their life for those crimes, but you still have unidentified victims. Those are still tragic cases, I understand, but you have a lot of cases like this where not only are they a victim of homicide, they're a victim of nobody even knowing who they are. And so if you can take care of step one, identifying this person, giving this person back their identity, you can then move forward and try to figure out what happened to this person. So this is what intrigued me about the case, and now we'll get into the second half of this investigation. Jane Doe has now been identified as Amy Marie Yeary. Amy was born on December 9th, 1989, and was 18 years old at the time of her death. Amy was from Rockford, Illinois at the time she went missing, and her mother was located and advised of Amy's death. The reason investigators never found a missing persons report for Amy was because the family never filed one, although they did claim that they looked for her after she went missing. But she was 18 years old at the time, and so maybe the family felt she was an adult and was making her own life choices. And we do see this from time to time. There are teenagers that become difficult, and I'm not saying this is the case with Amy, I'm just saying that this does happen. They become difficult, they want to move out, they don't want to live by the rules that their parents put forth for them. They want to party, they want to do whatever they want to do. And once that child turns 18, there's a lot of parents out there that are just like, once you turn 18, you're not my problem anymore. And unfortunately, those relationships, because of whatever it might be, they break down over time. And there, there's arguments, and sometimes somebody leaves saying, I never want to talk to you again, I never want to see you again. And then unfortunately, sometimes that happens. They don't talk to them, they don't see them ever again. And that person can be a victim of crime, especially a homicide, can end up being an unidentified missing person, because their family doesn't even realize something has happened to them because their last words were they never wanted to see them or talk to them again. And we are going to find out there is some communication between Amy and her family before her death, so it's not as if we know for sure that that was a conversation that they had. But from Amy's family standpoint, they have to look at it as she's 18, she was outliving the life that she was living and if she wants to disappear and never talk to us again that's her choice we'll look for her but there's no indication that 
anything has happened to her. So I'm guessing that's where the family was coming from. I'm I'm sure they were heartbroken and devastated to find out that the their daughter that they thought was alive for the last 13 years and just not talking to them was actually dead this entire time. But again, these situations do happen. It's unfortunate. This is another reason why this was such a hard case for investigators to crack was because you had a missing person that wasn't even known to be missing to law enforcement or to National Center for Missing and Exploited Children or, or anybody. But after identifying Amy, investigators had to go to work trying to solve her homicide. They learned that Amy was likely the victim of sex trafficking and was known to have been transient and staying in the areas of Beloit, Milwaukee, and Chicago in the weeks leading up to her death. Her mother stated her last contact with Amy was on August 8, 2008, when Amy called her and asked her for a ride home from Beloit. Rockford is only 30 minutes south of the city, but Amy's mother couldn't arrange a ride. And again, this either speaks to one of two things, either Amy's mother is extremely limited, some people do not have transportation, some people do not have a driver's license, some people do not have money for gas to make a 30 minute drive. So. I'm not judging Amy's mother for not driving up and picking up her daughter. There's circumstances in our lives that sometimes prevent that. Amy's mother will have to live with her inability to go get her daughter at that point, however she can the rest of her life. But And it's not to say that had Amy's mother driven up there and picked her up and brought her back to Rockford that Amy wouldn't have unfortunately fallen back into being a victim of sex trafficking after that and, and still ended up being killed at some point. So again, we can't look back with hindsight and say Amy's mother made a huge mistake here. Yes, there's a chance Amy would still be alive if her mother had picked her up that day, but again, I'm not passing judgment on her mother. A lot of message boards, reddits, whatever it might be out there are not as kind to Amy's mother, but again, I understand their circumstances we might not know, and unfortunately, the end result is that Amy wasn't back with her family on August 8th, and investigators somehow determined her date of death to be around August 15th to the 24th, but there's nothing at this time to indicate how they determined it, and I couldn't even find where this was noted in any type of an article or release. It's just honestly on her Wikipedia site. It says that her date of death is somewhere around August 15th to 28th. So I don't know if they just estimated that she was alive for a week after she talked to her mother or if they had other eyewitnesses that had seen Amy in the days after she talked to her mother. But again, we do know that for sure she was alive on August 8th and she was likely killed sometime shortly after that. And while the first half of the investigation is done, it's now up to investigators to solve her 13-year-old murder mystery. And we've talked about victimology before. Amy, being a victim of sex trafficking, is unfortunately also a very high-risk victim. And this is because there's no known suspects in the research, and her killer could have been someone who picked her up for services, picked her up as a hitchhiker, could have been her pimp, or could have been a random killer or it could have even been a significant other that people didn't know about because she was living this transient lifestyle. She could have had a boyfriend, abusive lover, or something along those lines. And the location of her body indicates something significant happened between August 8th, when she was in Beloit, to her death in rural Fond du Lac County. 
The farm she was found on was abandoned, which is either something the killer knew or the killer just got lucky. Also, Fond du Lac County is two hours north of Beloit and well outside the Milwaukee, Rockford, Chicago area. And remember, they said that she was transient between these areas. So she was either killed in that area that she was known to stay, which would have been the Milwaukee, Rockford, Chicago area, and driven two hours to this farm in the middle of nowhere, or she was in the area of Fond du Lac when she was killed. Unless investigators can find a connection directly to this farm, it seems unlikely a suspect would risk driving a murder victim almost two hours when the area just outside Beloit is just as rural and would serve the same purpose. And I say this again, Fond du Lac is in the middle of central Wisconsin, a little east, but still the middle of Wisconsin. Wisconsin itself, all of its major metropolitan areas are on the borders of the of the state it's, it's along lake michigan up in green bay it's even lake superior area superior then you've got madison kind of the i guess isn't but it's off the interstate in the south and then it's on the way to milwaukee which is just north of chicago so you've got these clusters of urban area in wisconsin but they're almost all on the borders of the state Whereas Fond du Lac, as I said, is, is pretty close to the center of the state. You don't need to drive two hours to get to a rural area of Wisconsin. This isn't the East Coast. This isn't driving two hours out of, of New York or New Jersey to get to a more remote location, northern New York or, or in Pennsylvania or anything like that. This is, you can drive 15 minutes outside of Beloit and you're in farm country. So it seems unlikely that somebody is going to risk this long drive unless you know that this farm is abandoned unless you know that it's a good place to dump a body and it's going to be a long time before somebody finds it so that's where i say either the crime occurred in the fond du lac area and then somebody who knew this farm was abandoned and dumped the body there or it's somebody who's willing to make that drive to a place they knew they could dump a body so the, the, my point is there should be some kind of a connection between this farm, this Fond du Lac County area, and potentially Beloit or Milwaukee, either somebody who lives in that area and has connections to this farm or knowledge of this farm. And again, I think that's, if the investigators do find an answer, it's going to be something along those lines. It's, it's once they develop a suspect, if they do, they're going to find a link between either this farm and the areas that she used to live, or just her, somehow her being in this area at the time of her death. Because I just, it has to be one or the other. I don't see there being any reason that she'd be killed anywhere else in the state and brought to this area. It just does, to me, it doesn't make any sense when you look at a map. And the investigators are keeping their investigation very close to the vest, so there maybe is a chance that Amy's killer is brought to justice. It's still quite the uphill climb, but hopefully this case will someday be solved, and the combination of advances in technology and good old-fashioned police work will put someone behind bars for the senseless murder. But that is the case of Amy Yeary, Fond du Lac's Jane Doe. Thank you guys for listening. Stay tuned for future episodes and feel free to write me at TrueBlueCrimeProductions at gmail.com. You can also find me at TrueBlueCrimeProductions on Facebook and support me via Patreon at TrueBlueCrimeProductions. That's it for today, guys. Thanks for listening. Talk to you later. Goodbye.